Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's show, we're going to talk about a quick update for the Activision Blizzard acquisition for spoken developers getting shut down, and we're going to finish it off by talking about Final Fantasy 16. But first, as has become tradition, Last of Us episode eight, which aired last night. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna spend too much time on this because I want to leave a lot of time for that final story about Final Fantasy 16. But I will say that this episode was a really almost direct translation of the game. Um, some moments, especially the ending, uh, were much much more improved on the TV show. I think they took what the game did and just elevated it. But I feel like this episode to me personally solidified this show as definitely one of the best TV shows I've ever seen. And it was a little difficult for me to say that because I'm such a fan of the game. I wanted to make sure that am I saying this because I'm a fan of the game? I would love to hear more from the perspective of someone that has never played the game. Uh, if they feel like this is one of the best things I've ever seen on TV. But I think that this, this episode did two things for me. Number one, it solidified this as one of the greatest TV series that HBO has ever produced. And I think number two, it actually made the game better for me. I think it proved something that we've all known for quite some time, that this is one of the greatest narratives that we've ever seen in our industry. And I think that translating it to a TV show and the fact that so much of it was directly translated, it was not changed, meaning that Craig Mazin, the master writer and creator that he is, saw that game for what it was and knew what needed to happen, which was, I'm not going to really have to change much here. I can just take this, I can elevate it, I can translate it, but I don't need to change the original words the original story, the original direction too much. And I think that this show now solidifies what a lot of us have been saying, which is that this game is without a doubt one of the greatest narratives our industry has ever seen. Now to our next story, which deals once again with Activision Blizzard. According to Reuters, Routers, I always forget how to pronounce that, the EU is close to approving Microsoft's Activision Blizzard acquisitions. Apparently, they are satisfied by Microsoft's latest efforts, including the 10-year deals with Nintendo and NVIDIA, alongside promising feature-for-feature parity for Sony's version of Call of Duty. Now, this is something that, obviously, Microsoft has talked about privately, and it's something that they've addressed publicly. Uh, Phil Spencer had a sort of another interview on a YouTube channel. I think it was called On Xbox or Xbox On, one of those two things. And he sort of briefly addressed Call of Duty and he talked about how it will be feature for feature with the PlayStation version that they're not interested. I, and I think I don't have the direct quotes in front of me. I think he even uh, went as far as to say not locking exclusive content to the Xbox version. Like I think I, I think he even addressed skins and things like that and them being available on both systems. So that is, honestly, it's a pretty major commitment for Microsoft to make, especially if they were to put it in writing of telling PlayStation, here's the 10-year deal. Part of the 10-year deal is as long as there's capability with your hardware, our hardware is both compatible and on a, you know, a similar level, which you know I think we can 
come to the agreement that they pretty are pretty much are really similar that, uh, you know, there would not be a feature or particular content that we will lock away from your ecosystem in order to give ours an advantage. That's a pretty big deal for them to strike with, um, with another, because we, I guess we haven't really seen much like this. Um, you know, obviously PlayStation publishes MLB the show. And as far as I know, it's feature for feature, the exact same thing as the Xbox version. Um, so I guess there is a little bit of history there in terms of one of them doing this for the other. But to sort of make that deal right now as Xbox, knowing full well that one of the reasons why PlayStation has been able to capture so much of that market share for Call of Duty has been through exclusive content, right? In the past, they've had exclusive single-player content. They've had exclusive multiplayer modes. They've had exclusive skins and exclusive early extended beta access, you know, um, what, you know, exclusive access to like double XP weekends and stuff like that. You know, they, they, they've kind of done a lot when it comes to getting exclusive items for Call of Duty, where if you are one of those people that own both of these consoles, or you're interested in buying a console, but you're a Call of Duty fan, your decision was very easy to make. You, you, you would always go for the PlayStation version. And, this would have been, this is something I've discussed in the past where this would have been an easy way for Xbox to satisfy uh, the CMA and say like, yeah, we're going to sign this deal. They can have Call of Duty, but giving themselves a little bit of extra content would be able to bump that maybe back to Xbox over the next decade or so. But it looks like that's not something that they're interested in, which is honestly, that's what I would call negotiating in very good faith. It really shows how much Microsoft would want to get this deal done. And it's one of those things where I kind of continue. I've said it before on the podcast where this deal really isn't about Call of Duty. Like Call of Duty is a great part of this deal. I still feel that was the episode that got made of Camp Koji, where I, where I brought up like the, the four or five reasons why they want to make this deal. And a lot of it is like a better foothold in places like China. A lot of it is to expand PC uh, into PC more. And then one of the big major ones is going into mobile. And I think that's why for them, it's like, yeah, we're not going to put this deal in jeopardy because we want our call of duty owners to have an exclusive gun skin or something like that. Right. Um, e e even putting Call of Duty on Game Pass would would instantly give you this advantage. Not only just uh, not only just present games, but past, present, and future. Right, knowing that if you're a Game Pass subscriber, um, you should or would have access to all of those um past Call of Duty games to replay the campaigns and stuff like that, which I'm sure a lot of people would be looking forward to. So I thought that that was really interesting to see. Now, the FTC has ruled, has also ruled in favor of Microsoft and has demanded that Sony reveal all third-party exclusivity con contracts they have struck since January 1st, 2019. 
Now, this is kind of the second major part of this acquisition deal. You have the EU and the CMA that um, asked for a further review, and then you have the FTC here in the United States that's doing something very similar, and PlayStation is trying to get these blocked on on both ends, right? They're working with the CMA and, and, and the EU, and they're working here in the United States with the FTC. And Microsoft, in order for them to put up their defense, they have requested certain documents and information from PlayStation. PlayStation has said that they were asking for too much. The FTC has ruled in favor of Microsoft, which to tell you the truth, I personally agree with, right? If your PlayStation and your defense is, hey, this is, um, you know, this is an egregious use of funds from Microsoft if they were to take Call of Duty and make it exclusive to their ecosystem, it would drastically hurt our business. Um, if you're saying that, if you're saying that exclusivity is way too much of a deal, right, in order for us to remain competitive, then I think it's fair game for you to speak and be very open about the amount of exclusivity contracts you've struck over you know the last decade or so. And of course, they shrunk it down uh, to just include 2019. But even within that short window, it's possible that we might hear about a lot of the big deals that they've struck. You know, like I'm curious how much they've paid. We maybe we might not find out how much they paid for the FF7 remake, but we might find out how much they paid for that sequel, right? Because that FF7 remake. Uh, payment would have been done before 2019, if my math is correct, probably. Um, but at the very least, we will find out how much does Sony pay for the FF7 remake sequel that's coming out in the future? How much are they paying for Final Fantasy 16? Uh, how much did they pay for the Silent Hill exclusivity? What were the... Uh, how much are they paying for even the small indie ones like Stray, Sifu, for example, that they paid for? Um and shoot, how many other ones? There's probably a bunch that I'm not thinking of right now off the top of my head. Um, maybe maybe Forspoken. Maybe Forspoken would be on there too, which obviously was probably a loss um, for them. But, you know, I, I, I this is kind of one of those where I do agree with. I think this was the right call from the FTC. But I think what's one of the most interesting things about this entire ordeal is that PlayStation has sort of shot themselves in the foot in a sense because not only is now this information going to be public and it's kind of their fault for making so much of a stink about all of this, um, they've now fundamentally affected their relationship with Activision Blizzard to the point where, as I said before, even if this doesn't happen, which I highly doubt, I, I've Ever since the moment this was announced, I've held to the fact that I do believe that this should be able to go through. If it doesn't, you fundamentally altered your relationship with Activision Blizzard. And I think the other thing that this has done is I wonder if this will affect exclusivity going forward, where, you know, what if uh, Xbox decides to start making even more of a stink with the FTC and the EU and wants to bring up sort of a, a separate case of like, hey, let's have a conversation about how much PlayStation pays in order to keep games off of Game Pass, keep games off of our ecosystem. 
it is sort of like opening a, a little bit of a can of worms. And it's something where if PlayStation goes to pursue and purchase another studio, like let's say this this gets done, right? The ink dries and PlayStation says, um, hey, we've struck a deal to absorb Square Enix, right? To, to purchase Square Enix, all of its studios, all of its intellectual property. Wouldn't you as Xbox as part of that process now do exactly what PlayStation is doing right now, right? You would go to the CMA, you would go to the um, the FTC and say, hey, when we tried to buy Activision Blizzard, um, PlayStation made a big stink about exclusivity. We struck a 10-year deal with them. We want the same now for Final Fantasy. We want the same deal for Kingdom Hearts. We want the same deal for Octopatra. Like, we want the same deal for anything that these studios put out now. We did We did this in good faith. Or or at the very least, they will probably say, we want at least a, a, a deal struck for their biggest IP, which is Final Fantasy. If, if Call of Duty to Activision is probably, I think, without argument, Final Fantasy is to Square Enix. Um, so we would like 10 year deals for final fantasy and kingdom hearts. We want that down on paper. So it, it, it sort of is one of those things where I feel like Sony making such a big deal out of this has essentially a little bit sort of changed the course of history of the way that we look at acquisitions. Whereas in the past, when, when Xbox went out and, and they bought uh, Mahjong for Minecraft or when they went out and bought Zenimax Media that included Bethesda. I think we all, or I, I'll just speak for myself, I walked away from that deal saying, that's it, Starfield, Oblivion, the next Fallout, they're all going to be Xbox exclusive. So something that I feel like we've grown to understand when it comes to these acquisitions. You buy a company, you have every right to then choose how to distribute the product that they create. Now with what PlayStation has done, They've, it's, it's almost like, it's not like, like our industry has been this complete secret, but our video game industry has, I guess, operating a little bit in, in a little bit of a shadow away from the FTC and the CMA. And it's almost like now we've kind of opened the door and let them in and showed them around. And once you do that, there are things that cannot be unseen and unheard. And it's like PlayStation has now opened this, uh, it, it literally is a can of worms, I guess, right? You've opened this window into our industry where now your main competitor can choose to uh, bring up the same argument against you and you don't, you kind of won't have a, a leg to stand on, right? Well, I mean, at that point, like let's say that scenario happens where they buy Square Enix, what 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 would you say as PlayStation? Like, what could you say at that point? They're, they're just using the same argument against you. They would go ahead and say that Final Fantasy is still and remains to be the biggest RPG in our industry. You have this huge, gigantic MMO that's growing every single day. Um, you know, Final Fantasy 16 is already one of the most highly anticipated games. You can't continue to keep this away from us. Because remember... At least something like the Crisis Core remake is coming to Xbox, right? Uh, Octopath Traveler 1 came to Xbox, right? There was still like a little bit of an inkling of a relationship between them and Square Enix. And, you know, like I, I remember reading this, just a really dumbass, it was just a dumbass rumor, but whatever, for the sake of my argument, I'll bring it up, where someone was talking about Sony pursuing a purchase of Take-Two Interactive. 
that would never ever happen <laughs> there's no way sony has enough money to make a proper offer to take two remember take two owns grand theft auto they own rockstar they own uh 2k they own nba 2k among all these other ip that they own i don't i don't think they'll be interested in selling but you know what would happen if that deal like let's say in the magical moment that playstation announces that they're purchasing take two if you're xbox and you say okay cool now put it down on paper that you're gonna guarantee me grand theft auto for the entire timeline that you own this company once again, it's like you don't have a leg to stand on if you're PlayStation because you make such a big stink about Call of Duty and make it sound like you would have to shut down your operations if Xbox were to make Call of Duty exclusive. So yeah, it's 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 this has been just extremely interesting for me. I'm I'm more than happy for this to end. I'm hoping that by the middle of this year, at the latest by May. Uh, this will be completely done and Xbox will be allowed to purchase this company, this publisher. We won't have to hear about this again. But at the same time, the one way that it does kind of feel like a little bit like Microsoft shot itself in the foot, I guess, to, 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 to introduce some balance here, is that this this kind of might be the end for Microsoft. Like they they can't pursue, I don't think they can pursue any other publishers after this one. I think it'll be extremely difficult for them to um, come out and want to buy any other publisher. Maybe they can start pursuing smaller studios. I've said for, for quite some time that, you know, I think that Microsoft should be purchasing a Sobo Studios. I think that's the one that they, that, that I would personally pursue. They have a really good relationship. A Sobo worked on Plague Tale. They, they, they made Microsoft Flight Simulator. I think that's a really talented team, right? But I, I think like this is it for them. I don't I don't think there's really much more that they can they can go off and purchase after making such a gigantic acquisition as as this one. Our next story is actually a few Square Enix stories. We're actually going to finish the rest of the show just focusing on Square Enix. But this portion is a few Square Enix stories, but we're going to start off with Yuji Naka who worked with Square Enix on Balan or Balan Wonderland. He last week admitted guilt while standing trial for his insider trading arrest now this is something we discussed before in the podcast he was uh charged for two separate instances of insider trading uh directly connected to i think it was two separate mobile games i think it was the dragon quest mobile game and then the final fantasy 7 soldier battle royale i think it was where he knew these the he, he had knowledge about these games existence before their announcement so he knew the timing and I, he bought stock. And of course, that is legal. <laughs> For those that don't know, insider trading basically means that you have knowledge from the inner workings of a company that would give you an advantage on the market, whether buying or selling. You know, So maybe you know that, hey, on Friday, Microsoft's going to announce a million people are going to get fired. At that point, you would sell your stock because you know that the stock is going to go down the moment that that announcement is made. So that that that's a perfect example. So he uh, admitted guilt. Apparently, sentences around there covering an average of two to five years in prison. And I think the penalty is like five million yen. Uh, was what I read from a website. I'm not 100% sure how accurate that is. That translates to about like 36,000 US dollars. So, I mean, that penalty is not really that big. 
But obviously the jail time is, is one of those um, uh, big problems. I personally can't foresee this man spending, you know, being sentenced to five years. I think I think this is probably going to be no more than two years uh, if he's prosecuted or when he's prosecuted since he admitted guilt. I can't uh, see a scenario where he's not prosecuted, right? Um, my guess would be two years or less with uh, a strong possibility of just one year, I think is what this person would get. But this is um, kind of a big name person. So maybe a prosecutor in Japan would like to use this as an example to deter people from doing this in the future. So maybe it might be closer to two years. I just can't imagine it going all the way to five years. In other Square Enix news, in a notice to shareholders last week, Square Enix Holdings said it intended to replace President Yosuke Matsuda with relative Square Enix newcomer Takashi Kiryu pending shareholder approval. He joined the company in June 2020 as general manager of its corporate planning division. Now, many fans were excited to hear about this news because um, Tetsuya, excuse me, Yosuke Matsuda was very open about his love for NFTs. He had put out an open letter that we all very much mocked uh, because it was such a stupid letter that he wrote uh, praising NFTs and talking about a possible future of integrating them into Square Enix games. And of course, people dragged him through the mud for it. So they're excited to hear that he's out. But spoiler alert for anyone and everyone out there, I've brought this up before, I will echo it whenever I have the chance to. Every single publisher you love is talking about NFTs. It might not be some of the smaller publishers, but definitely the major ones, Ubisoft, Take-Two, Nintendo, Xbox, PlayStation, they are all researching NFTs. They have never stopped. For them, it's very, very simple. They understand that it will be a, an enormous PR mistake for them to continue to talk about NFTs publicly. It just doesn't make any sense. So I don't think that this means like this new president is going to come in and say, hey, is there a division here talking about NFT and crypto? Yes. Well, I want it shut down. Like that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, what all these companies are waiting for is for the audience to be ready. And this is the thing that I need people to understand about NFTs. NFTs, a big percentage of NFTs are being used the wrong way. That's the way they got to look at it, right? A lot of them, yes, are scams. A lot of crypto scamming, 100%. But you know, a lot of phone calls, a lot of text messages, a lot of emails, a lot of websites are built purely for scamming. It doesn't mean we throw the website. It doesn't mean we throw the internet in the garbage. It doesn't mean we throw the we throw emails into the garbage, right? Uh, right now, we're in the explosion of AI. There are a lot of instances where AI can be used to assist and ease workflows. That's a positive use of this technology. A negative use of, uh, of it is the, 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 the deep faking, uh, the voice faking, the, uh, the stealing of, of art without attribution or payment to the original artist. Those, in my opinion, are abuses of the AI technology. And that's sort of the way that I look at NFTs as uh, as a whole, is that there are these positive use cases of NFTs. The problem, though, is that 99% of the time you hear about it is some website telling you why it's so shitty, why it's crappy, why it's nothing but a scam. And I get it. I 100% get all that stuff. The, the thing is, though, 
that there was way too much money flowing in and subsequently flowing out of crypto. It's just too big for companies to ignore. And we've, we've been in this cycle before, right? Um, we've been in the cycle of games being just single player. Then uh, we, we had the cycle of multiplayer. Then once we had the advent of multiplayer, that's when we had the Xbox 360 error where we, we found out that we can sell smaller versions of video games, arcade games, right, at, at, at a smaller price. Then they introduced a marketplace. Then we had things like map packs. We had expansion packs, right? Oh, cool. So I could sell you a game at $50, $60. And then a few months later, I could sell you new maps, new weapons for another 20 bucks, right? So that was a, a way to bring in new revenue. Then we had things like loot boxes. Loot boxes, uh, even though it kind of was a Blizzard creation, it really became popular on cell phones, right? And our industry was waiting for gamers to catch up. And it's like, okay, gamers are ready for loot boxes. We found a way to make them work. Let's put loot boxes in there. Now loot boxes aren't working anymore. What's the next big thing? Oh, here's Fortnite popularizing this thing called battle passes. Okay, it looks like everyone's ready for battle passes. Now, every single f in multiplayer game on the planet has a battle pass. I mean, look at Suicide Squad. getting destroyed by shit like this, right? Then we had the advent of live service. Then these companies started to figure out something that I brought up years ago, which is uh, the, the best way to make money is to let people into your store for free. That's what you do. You can let them in for free, and then you sell them stuff afterwards. So a lot of people started employing this, this free-to-play game. You look at Overwatch 2. It's an amazing free game. We're giving you a bunch of cool stuff for free. Maybe you might have to work in order to get that new hero. Um, but here's here's an amazing skin that you think looks really cool. Give me $22 for it, right? So a lot of it is about finding out what works, what will work. But it's really about when will consumers be ready to, to take this on. And NFTs right now, consumers are just not ready for it. But I don't think that that means that publishers are just 100% done with it. Um, every single publisher is, is discussing it internally, and each of them is trying to figure out a way. They're working with their PR and their marketing teams to try to figure out a way, how can we make this happen without people knowing that they're NFTs. We all remember Ubisoft tried to get away with calling them digits, for example. That didn't work, right? Um, and I think it's going to be a way where they're just kind of going to call them what PlayStation did with PlayStation Stars, right? They're going to be like, well, they're just digital collectibles. And then maybe at some point they're like, hey, you can trade. You can now trade digital collectibles. You know, those little trophies on your shelf. If you want, you could trade them with your friends now. And it's almost like trying to find ways to assimilate you uh, into the mindset of, hey, you know those digital items that you have? You do own them. You 100% own them. And I want to bring that thought process into more games, whether single player or whatever, even if it's within my own ecosystem. And I think when they think that everyone is ready, then they're really going to explode with tradable, buyable, sellable digital marketplaces and things like that. I don't think that NFTs, this new president is going to come in, they're not going to discuss it. But I, th I think if he's smart, he will never, ever discuss this publicly ever again like uh, Matsuda did. It's just not, this is not the right thing to do. Now, alongside this um, press release, Square Enix also announced 
that Luminous Productions, the team behind Forspoken, was being closed and all employees will be absorbed into Square Enix. Um, Forspoken was Luminous Productions' first and only game. Now, the studio was assembled by former Final Fantasy XV devs. So that was the game that they worked on before they were sort of moved into their own studio. They got their own name. They created a team called Luminous, which is based, I think I think it's the same name as the engine that was used for Final Fantasy XV. And I believe that same engine powered um, Forspoken. I think they were called like Square Enix Division 2, some kind of weird name like that. Um, but yeah, like this I mean, you have to understand how poorly a game must have performed for a studio to be shuttered within months of a video game's release. When did this game come out? Was it January or <laughs> something like that? Like, it really hasn't been long since this game um, released. And this is kind of one of those moments and these instances where number one PlayStation definitely lost out on this one. Like it's okay. You know, PlayStation has more winners than losers, right? But this is definitely one of PlayStation's losers. Like Square Enix is probably looking at the money that they were paid to make Forspoken exclusive. And they're like, woof, it's a good thing we made that deal. Cause we, we definitely would have lost even more money. Um, because if they would have made this multi-platform out of, you know, brought it to Xbox also, for example, uh, I, I think it would have been even worse. I, that PlayStation money sort of saved them a little bit. Um, but this is kind of one of those things where it's like, it, it's hard to even blame a, a, a team. Like sometimes an idea is so bad that you have to blame it on the people up top that made the decisions. And I think that's really what Forspoken was. It just really wasn't a good idea. And you take a bad idea and you 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 couple that with poor execution and that's how you come out the other side with something like Forspoken, which is a game that at its core is really good in terms of the gameplay was really good. Visuals, I think, were, were pretty good for that game. It was a game that I was personally excited about when they first showed it. It's one of those games that continues to remind me why it's so difficult to get excited when a game is first shown. Because I think we now are in a much better point to understand that the first time you see a game is not the actual game that you're going to get. It's so rare nowadays. Um, if you look at Forspoken when it was first shown and you look at it now, you are seeing two completely different games. I think we've gotten to the point where this should begin to be illegal, to be honest with you, I think. Or, or we need bigger, bolder font at the bottom that says this is a target video, you know. Um, we usually get what's called pre-release gameplay, for example, which I think is extremely misleading and something that I feel like it should be illegal by now because it's like, yeah, even if that, that was gameplay, like someone was actually controlling that character when you captured it, you're still showing me an extremely small slice that you built for the game, one that will not be able to withhold once you build the rest of this world. So it's not really realistic to say that anymore i feel like it's better to say pre-real pre pre-release target gameplay or something like that um but yeah i mean hopefully no one lost their jobs it sort of sounds like it's going to be shut down and all these employees will be absorbed into 
Square Enix and maybe they're helping to build uh, the next Kingdom Hearts, for example, or, or what have you, right? Um, so hopefully no one lost their jobs uh, as much as I've kind of trashed Forspoken a bit for just kind of being very a, a not very good game. I definitely don't want anyone to lose their job over it. So hopefully no one has lost anything um, when it comes to moving over. And now our final story deals with Final Fantasy 16. Producer Naoki Yoshida confirmed that Sony has a six-month exclusivity window for the game, but the PC version will not be ready within half a year. So he confirmed that the game is coming to PC. They could release it six months after the release of the game on PlayStation 5, but he's saying that um, for technical reasons, it will not be built in time. So he was just basically telling fans, do not expect to have Final Fantasy 16 on PC at any point in time this year. So it will be on PC next year at the earliest, it sounds like, which I love. I, 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 I wish more companies would be very, very open and communicative because you know that you're going to have PC fans waiting on this game. You're better off telling them like, hey, if you're expecting to play it this year, go buy a PlayStation 5. I really like that he just came forward and, and said that. He um, Another thing that sort of made waves uh, across Twitter was that he was also asked about the current state of JRPGs versus Western RPGs. And his um, answer was, quote, for us as developers in Japan, the first time we heard it, it was like a discriminatory term as though we were being made fun of for creating these games. And so for some developers, the term JRPG can be something that will maybe trigger bad feelings because of what was in the past. It wasn't a compliment to a lot of developers in Japan. We understand that recently JRPG has better connotations and is being used as a positive, but we still remember the time when it was used as a negative. This was very interesting <clears throat> for so many reasons because it's something that I've talked about on this show I tend to talk about it uh, very publicly, just like in conversation, about what I call the erosion of uh, literacy, not just literacy, technical literacy, but media literacy. And you noticed it when you looked across Twitter where you saw people that did not read the full article, where they didn't read the point where he said, hey, we now understand what is meant by JRPG. We, we understand that it's... Um, used as a very, <clears throat> or I want to say used, yeah, I'll, I'll say so, used positively or more specifically speaking, not negatively. Like JRPG is not used in a negative way. And I agree with that sentiment in terms of like speaking about JRPGs recently, I would say probably within the last decade, but probably more strongly within the last five to six, seven years, JRPGs are really, in my opinion, used as a separator. Like if someone says it's a Western RPG versus a Japanese RPG, I think just those two connotations gives you an instant picture of the type of game that you're um, about to play. Um more than anything else, I think it's really used as a style marker. Like it gives you a good idea of the type of game that you're about to play. But I also fully understand 
what Yoshi P means in terms of him and his team remembering a point in time where it was used negatively. And I think there were some people that were online. They were like, nah, there was, there was, there was never a time where we ever used that negatively bullshit. Let me tell you something. When someone tells you, uh, when someone Japanese tells you, yeah, there was a moment in time where we felt like JRPG, Japanese RPG was used negatively. Maybe you should shut up and listen to the Japanese person, you idiot. Like this is kind of one of those instances where someone is giving you their perspective on something. And you need to understand that there are always two sides of the coin, right? When you're facing that coin, you've only seen one side. You've been staring at heads the entire time. And here comes this other, the other side that's telling you, hey, let me tell you what tails looks like. And you're telling them, no, 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 it's a giant head. Shut the fuck up. Like this is exactly what this conversation devolves into. If anyone steps forward and says, no, there was never a time where we ever once used JRPG negatively. That's BS. It's complete bullshit. There have definitely been moments where people have used JRPG in reviews. You can look as far back. A lot of people online started bringing up X-Play and, and their review of Baten Kaitos as a way to be um, very transparently racist and even in some instances xenophobic um, because those were those times, right? And I look at it as like we've just matured. We've gotten better, all right? We've we've as a society, we become more inclusive of others when it comes to speaking about differences in the ways that we um, direct and, and, and develop and create. And I'm just talking about video games, but you can express that across the, uh, across the board when you're talking about films or music as an example. But obviously, this is a video game podcast. Um, there's, it's just impossible to tell a Japanese person that's telling you, hey, this is how we felt about that term. And you go to that person and say, no, you, you, you're wrong. We never use that term that way. You're, you're living in this stupid bubble that you need to get yourself out of. Uh, I, I just, I can't stand people that uh, go through life this way, where you live in this bubble of, hey, this is the way that I've seen things. This is the way that these conversations go within my bubble. So I don't give a fuck about your bubble. Just step into mine. That's not how any, that's not how the world works, especially when you're talking about um, two countries that are worlds apart culturally, right? Things are so different uh, within these two countries where, you know, if you go to Japan, you, you, you ask them about school shootings, they'll probably look at you like you're, you're a moron. Like, what the hell are you talking about, <laughs> right? We live in two completely different worlds our countries live in. So you can't tell that person that, no, you're overreacting. Like, it's just so stupid. Um, now, the second part of this story is back in November, just a reminder, IGN asked Yoshi P about whether or not the game would feature any black people or other people of color. Now, at that point, Yoshida explained that the fantasy world of Valisthea was based on medieval Europe, and they wanted to limit the world culturally and geographically. Quote, Valisthea was never going to realistically be as diverse as, say, a modern-day Earth or even Final Fantasy XIV. He said, as if he was being asked to incorporate every race on the entire planet. 
ultimately, we felt that while incorporating ethnic diversity into Valisteo was important, an over-incorporation into the single corner of a much larger world would end up causing a violation of those narrative boundaries we originally set for ourselves. That's a very important point right there. We originally set for ourselves. The story we are telling is fantasy, yes, but it is also rooted in reality. Now, the reason why this is being brought back up is because journalist Ash Parrish asked Yoshi P last week if since that interview with IGN, Yoshida had the opportunity to hear feedback and if he had anything to say to the fans of color who may be turning their back on the game. Now, last week was a preview week for Final Fantasy uh, 16. We got a new look at the game. We got some new footage, but we also got previews, hands-on previews from, from different journalists that were able to try the game. That's why this question was asked. Quote, this is what Yoshi P says. I believe that with Final Fantasy 16, we weave together a variety of peoples and cultures set in this kind of sweeping fantasy narrative and world and one that we strive to create with care and respect. We hope that when players finally are able to take up the game in their own hands, that they will be able to see what we've aimed for and will hopefully ultimately be able to connect with that unique experience. Now, I wanted to speak about this. I had tweeted about a little bit about it last week, but I really wanted to talk about this um, for kind of just so many reasons. But the first one that comes up to mind is... One of the reasons why I started Camp Koji, and let me finish my sentence because I feel like the beginning of it might sound a little bit harsh. One of the reasons why I wanted to start Camp Koji and just want to do a podcast just talking about video games and even just to content creation in general is because I was tired of seeing only white people talk about video games. And like I said, that that might sound a little bit harsh. And and look, our industry has gotten a lot better. But I still feel like a good majority of video game critics and commenta- uh, commenters uh, within our industry uh, are not black or brown. And when I think about this journalist, Ash Parrish, who's, who um, she is black, she was the only person who asked this question. Now, remember, this first popped up back in November when IGN brought it up. As far as I could tell, across all the previews that came up, no one asked this question. No one was concerned about this. No one wanted to hold up that mirror to this producer once again and ask him what I feel like is a very justified, I think it's a very simple question to ask. Why in the year 2022, 23, there are no brown or black people in your video game. I think that's a very simple question um, to ask. I think it's a justified question to ask. Um, And this is why we need black creators uh, inside of the industry in terms of to create. And we need black creators and journalists on the other side in order to ask these questions. Because if it wasn't for Ash Parrish, this would not have been brought up again. And I feel like it's a conversation that is important for all of us to have. Because we, we unfortunately live in this time where it feels like the minority is the majority, right? So sometimes it feels like the majority of people 
have a problem with the Little Mermaid in live action being black when it's actually not true. But unfortunately, the way that social media works, the way your algorithm works, and and part part of this, you know, people who defend um, the Little Mermaid uh, are also partly to blame because when it comes to social media, for some reason, an overwhelming majority of people can't help themselves when it comes to retweeting and requoting garbage, right? So someone has a really shitty take, right, about how the Little Mermaid shouldn't be black when we all know it's fucking ridiculously stupid, right? It's just, it's just a fictional character, right? But for some reason, people who err on the side of common sense can't help but signal boost these really stupid takes. And when it comes to something like Final Fantasy 16, I think it is a very important conversation for us to have. And I think it's a really important question to ask, which is why is it that you've created this video game? One of the arguably the most popular RPG of all time, right? Final Fantasy, the most popular RPG IP of our lifetime in 2023, one that I guarantee you is consumed by many people of color. Why is it that you felt that it was okay to create this video game and not have any people of color in it? I think that this is such a fundamentally uh, broken problem within our industry where I think that as people of color, we're not we're not asking for the world, right? We're not going to Yoshi P and saying, why have none of your protagonists been black? Why have none of your main protagonists been black? And I, I, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not 100% sure of this, you know, but I don't think Final Fantasy has ever had a main black character. But even if they had, right? That's not the point. That we're not asking for that, right? We're, no one's going to Square Enix and saying, "Why, why aren't all of your protagonists black or people of color?" Right? All we're saying, all we're asking for is inclusion, right? And I think that asking for equality isn't like a step too far, in my opinion, where you're creating a game of fantasy. Because remember, this is a fantasy game. I don't care what Yoshi P wants to tell me. By saying, quote, the story we are telling is fantasy, yes, but it is also rooted in reality. I'm sorry. You can't come to me and tell me that you have this game that's rooted in reality, but you have dragons in it. And I saw a gameplay, right, uh, a few days ago where the main character turned into a gigantic fire monster. Like, you, you can't come to me and tell me that you're building this world rooted in reality, and somehow having people of color, not, not even protagonists. Remember, this isn't about the main character not being a person of color. This is just saying, why is it that in this world, there are no tan people? <laughs> why, why is it that in this world, it's just too much of a stretch for you to include people of color into this world? Why is it that dragons and magic and and me being able to shoot ice out of my hands. Why is it that that's um, more realistic? That's more rooted in reality. That fits more into your vision of the world that you created. Why does that fit more? Why does that make more sense 
than simply just having people of color. And I think what's interesting is what a lot of people have online have brought up, which is that um, in medieval Europe, even in actual real history, there were people of color. And I think that this is also just another problem, which is way much bigger than a video game podcast, which is this erasure of, of people of color in roles that people have now grown to, to look at as traditionally white, right? When you think of Europe and European, people are always thinking about white people, right? When you think about cowboys, which is a perfect example, you think about white people, right? When there has been more than enough history to show that there were black cowboys, right? Um, that's indicative of a much bigger problem. But my major issue is not really just that there's no people of color in this game. I don't think that's the main problem at hand that we're talking about right here. My main issue is when publishers, excuse me, or, or directors and creators make excuses. That's my main issue. My, my problem is more like if you were to tell me like, hey, this is the game that we created we weren't really thinking that much about people of color, then at the very least, you're telling me the truth. But my big issue is trying to hide the truth. It's like sweeping it underneath this rug of bullshit where you're telling me that a game that has dragons and magic, <laughs> um, you know, uh, and a healing potion that, you, that, that can heal you from critical death all the way to 100% in, in three to five seconds, a game that if you die, you can instantly come back, right? This, this is a video game. It's not rooted in reality. But you can't tell me that, you know, you you and your team um, set what you consider narrative boundaries that you originally set for yourselves. Then that means that you and your team made this decision Right. Because remember, you are the ones that you, you you can change this. You can absolutely make that decision. Someone can raise their hand in that room and say, wait a minute, guys, why are we creating a narrative without people of color? Why can't we just have a, a group of people or a nation or a certain point in the game where everyone in that village is a person of color? That is really reflective of our real world. We have a lot of people of color playing our video games. Why not just do that? What, what is holding us back from doing that? Remember, these are, it, it's like you're, you're the ones that put up the fence, right? You put up this, this narrative fence and put yourselves into it, where now you're trying to explain to me that, hey, this corner of the world is somehow geographically too small for it to make sense for there to be people of color here. It's, it's just such a poor, it's a piss poor excuse. And look, at the end of the day, I'm not sitting here thinking that there were meetings going on with, you know, Yoshi P explicitly sat down in a chair and said, okay, guys, let's start building our Final Fantasy 16. The set of a couple of rules. Rule number one, no black people. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's what happened, right? But it's more about during the entire process of this video game, there was never once a consideration for what I would consider something that should just be a bare minimum in video games nowadays, where I look at it as like, if you're building a world 
and you're trying to landlock it or lock it into a moment of time, you're trying to tell a specific story, then it would make sense, right? If EA builds um, that Black Panther game that we're all, uh, that we know it's kind of rumored, but it's sort of happening, right? If they're building a Black Panther game and I go to visit Wakanda, it would make sense why there wouldn't be any white people in Wakanda, right? <laughs> right? That's something that would make sense, right? Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an original story, an original fantasy, where I just feel like, once again, it's just a, the bare minimum. And it goes to show you that it's like how many black people are working in that Square Enix office that are building this Final Fantasy game. It's one of the reasons why, um, who was it? It was Blessing from Kind of Funny did a video, I think it was like a week or two ago, talking about the absence of black hair in video games and why it's so hard to find black hair in video games. And I think for people that are white, for white people and white gamers, I think it's extremely easy for a lot of them to look at this story, bubble to the surface, um, even to hear me talking about it, and probably look at me and look at us and say, what's the big deal? It's not a big deal. It's just a video game. Or a lot of people say, like, is their video game, is their vision, they can build whatever they want. But we are the fans. We're the ones who consume this. We're the ones who pay money for it. We're not, like I said, we're not asking, we're not going, no one's going to Square Enix and saying, hey, can every single protagonist be black? Can you tell a black story? Can you have a black main character? That's not even what's being asked for. We're literally asking for the bare minimum. We're saying, hey, we live in this world where black people are real. Black and brown people exist, all right? Um, there are not many places in the world that you can go to where you will not see a person of color. That's that's just all we're saying. We're saying that a good chunk of the people that consume your product are black. That's that's really all we're saying. And the way to 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 um to look at it, the the reason why this upsets me so much is literally just the excuse is being given for not including the bare minimum, right? It's like, like what excuse would you accept for in the year 2023 for someone to, to have a create a character and not allow you to choose black skin, right? At one point in time in our video game history, that's where we were. If you are a person of color, such as myself, when you played a video game and you were creating your own character, we would literally have to imagine our character looking like us because it was impossible. At one point in video games, we were not allowed to create a person of color, right? And when you're playing a video game and you create a character, the whole point of a create a character <laughs> is for you to live through that person. It's another hurdle for us when we're creating a character that does not look like us. We are experiencing that right now, or probably more black people than a person like me who's, who's uh, Dominican. Um, they experience it every single time they go to create a character because now you're creating a character and you can't have, the, the crown doesn't match, right? Hair, which is a very, very key important part of black culture, is something that it seems the majority of publishers 
are not interested in putting in the time and the money to include black hair into a video game. It's It was one of the most universally praised um, moments of Hogwarts Legacy was something as simple as being able to see a fade on a character or being able to see uh, a really, really, really good natural hair, really good dreads on a character. Um where you could see that there was time and there was money put into this. And I guarantee you that I'm probably 99% sure that that was built by a black artist. It was worked on by black artists. And I, I, I remember I had tweeted about this, about how at one point, even something like Animal Crossing. Remember, Animal Crossing is a game that's fantasy, right? I mean, you're living on in a village filled with animals right it's peak fantasy at that point correct but at the same time it's like yeah it sucks when you're creating a character and you can't make the skin color look like yours and as i said we're not asking for more right all all people of color are asking for in video games is just equality that's all that's being asked of from these companies and it just it it really hurts that we're in the year 2023 and you're telling me that in your fantasy world, people of color is just, it's, it's, it's like, it's too big. It's, 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 it's too big for us to imagine. Like we, we can imagine dragons and all these different monsters and flying monsters and all these things that are the size of a building Fire attacks, ice attacks, lightning attacks, all of this stuff we can imagine it, but we just can't imagine a video game or we can't imagine a part of our world that contains people of color. It's this, we should not be having to have this discussion in the year 2023, because as I said, it is literally what I would consider the bare minimum. I, I remember when uh, Deathloop was announced, I remember saying that watching that trailer uh, made me excited and made me feel something that I haven't really felt before watching any other video game trailers because it was me watching two black main characters, two black protagonists of a video game. And as I said, I really wish that we were at a moment in time where we didn't have to think about that, right? Where that wasn't a special moment in a video game trailer, where it became so normalized that it wasn't something that surprised me. If I were to play a video game right now and go into the character creator and the first default character was black, the first thing I would do would go, whoa, wow, that's different. That's new because the overwhelming majority of games that you play where you create a character, the default is white. And that's all we ask of when we, when we talk to people, especially white creators, white people, when it comes, it, it's almost like just imagine yourself in our shoes where across so much popular media, whether it's TV shows, whether it's film, whether it's uh, um, uh, video games, where 
we are all across so much popular media having to accept white as the default color, right? We hopefully you've seen, you know, everything everywhere all at once, which was one of the best films you will ever see. It was definitely one of, if not the best film that that released last year, but it's like to see, um, I'm going to butcher his name. Kihai Kwan, I think is, is, is how you pronounce his name. Um, him having like his Renaissance his comeback story to hear him win an award and say, Hey, you know, I just found out I'm the first Asian to win this award. It's 2023. How long has Hollywood been operated? You're telling me that we just had the first Asian win that particular award. And that's something that you will look at and say like, man, that's, that, that has to be a problem. There has to be an issue here. There has to be a problem here where you're still hearing about uh, Asian actors and even uh, actors of color still having to deal with stereotypes. And for us in video games, this is, this is our stereotype, right? Where we've gotten so used to getting excited and being happy and being able to play a game and uh, accept it and enjoy it and praise it and love it for um, for what it narratively stands for and be able to look past because we're forced to look past the skin color of the protagonist, right? I sit here and I praise and I love The Last of Us even though every... Let me see. I'll have to think. Let me see. I'll have to think about it. But specifically in the first game, yes, every black character dies in the end. Every black character suffers traumatically. Uh, and then the same thing could be said about The Last of Us Part Two, right? You have Henry, you have Sam, and then you have um, shoot. I'm blanking, but um, I'm blanking on her name. But the woman that kind of puts his entire journey uh, in motion. Uh, you guys know who I'm talking about. Ellie's caretaker. And then at the end, um, actually, hold on. That's the spoilers. Um, but, uh, you know, that's why to me, I'm always baffled by these few moments where black people will come forward and say, hey, can we have this discussion? This is kind of a problem right now. Why doesn't Final Fantasy have any black characters? And then we have to hear from white people telling us, why are you making this such a big deal? <laughs> like, we literally have to sift through every single year, year in, year out, having to play and watch white protagonists after white protagonists after white protagonists uh, in the biggest games of the year in, in the years, uh, big, biggest games of the year, every single year, we have to sit down and look at announcements of white protagonists, white protagonists on the video game covers, um, and be okay with it, right? It's not like every single game gets announced and people of color are like, oh, here we go again, another white person leaking this video game. We're not doing that. It's, it's literally asking for equality. That's it. You know, it, 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 it reminds me of like um, um, the gay community asking 
for marriage. That was it. Like, right. We're not asking for, for, for more, right. We're asking for equality. We just want to be married the same way that, that a, a man can marry a woman. We want it to be so that a man can marry another man. A woman can marry another woman. That's all we're asking for. All they're asking for was equality. And people are like, no, that's too much. And it's like for this moment, for final fantasy 16, all people of color are asking for is just equality. I think it's a simple question to ask. Why is it in a video game with dragons? Why is it that black people is just a step too far? It's the same thing as like the Little Mermaid argument. It's the same thing as like people talking about how black people shouldn't be in Lord of the Rings. Why is it in a world of orcs, a world of mermaids, right? You, you're okay with the lobster being Jamaican. What's, what's the problem with the Little Mermaid being black? And it's like, then you have white people that will go forward and say like, well, it's not racist for me to say this. Nah, you know what? You're, you're in that arena. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you may not be at bat, but you're in that stadium. If that's your thought process of you trying to scientifically explain to me why a mermaid can't be black. Right. Um, it's, it, it, it has that same energy of you trying to tell me, well, let me tell you why our, our game that has fire-breathing dragons, why realistically there wouldn't be any black people here. It's such BS. And I'm not a Final Fantasy fan because I don't like turn-based games. This game looks appealing to me because it has like a Devil May Cry sort of gameplay it's live it's 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 action gameplay right it's live action it's not turn-based and this game to me does look appealing it looks i've never in my life bought a final fantasy game i'm just not a fan of turn-based games i understand why people love them so much i understand why they're revered but i'm just not a fan of turn-based gameplay it's very rare that i like a turn-based game this is a game that to me is like, man, this thing does look really interesting. And that must suck. Like you have to understand how much that sucks. Uh, and I'm not even talking about me. I'm talking about being a, a, a fan of color. You've been playing Final Fantasy since the very first one, right? You've seen some of the black uh, protagonists that they have created for the game like Barrett. And I know a lot of people praise characters like Barrett. And you still feel like it's a struggle where I'm sure if you're a fan of Final Fantasy, a fan of Final Fantasy, and I ask you to name black characters, I feel like you probably won't be able to, to, to count past one hand. We're on Final Fantasy 16. And, and, and for me, as a person who comments on this industry and is very well aware of, of Final Fantasy, I can picture three characters of color in my head. I can only name one, which is Barrett, but I can picture three of them. Three. 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 That's bad. That's horrible. And as I said, people of color are not asking for more. It's not like going to... Um, to Square Enix and saying, hey, for the, we want reparations for the next 10 years. Every single Final Fantasy character has to be black. That's not what's being asked. And I think the other part of the story is people who keep talking about Japan, who say that because of the makeup of Japan, 
it's almost like we have to give them a pass for this. Like it's it's okay because when you look at Japan, everyone, you know, the 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 majority of Japanese people look exactly the same. Bullshit. I call BS on that. Because if you have a team like Sucker Punch that could create a game like Ghost of Tsushima, a game that was universally praised by Japan, right? You had Japanese magazines, Japanese journals. I think they even won uh, awards and recognition for their depiction of Japan, for the amount of work, for the amount of care, for the amount of history that was injected into that game. People of Japan looked at Ghost of Tsushima and even said, this was public, they even looked at Ghost of Tsushima and said, I can't believe that a Western developer did a Japanese, a feudal Japanese game better than some Japanese developers have. So if a Western developer can do this, and you're going to tell me now that a Japanese developer can't do the same, that they can't do uh, a game like Final Fantasy 16 from the very beginning, identify uh, a group of people like the Moors, which were Muslims in, in uh, I think it was in Spain. Don't quote me on that. I'm not really a huge history buff. Buff. You're telling me that a company that makes as much money as Square Enix says, hey, can we build a team? Can we find some black artists? Can we find some black historians to tell us about the more so we can inject them into our video game? But Sucker Punch was able to do that with Ghost of Tsushima. We can't expect the same from, uh, from Square Enix when it comes to them creating a fantasy video game. And remember, um, Ghost of Tsushima was something that was rooted in reality, it was rooted in history. So Ghost of Tsushima is a game, but because it was rooted in history, it was rooted in reality. I'm not going to play Ghost of Tsushima and say, wait a minute, where are all the black people? I understand that because of because of geographically where it took place in a very real place. Now you're telling me that you're building a place of complete fantasy <laughs> and I'm supposed to sit back and believe when you tell me that having people of color was a step too far, it would make your game unrealistic? No. No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. This week's hot release is March 6th. We actually have a lot. Dead Cells Return to Castlevania, PC, PS4, PS5, Switch, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. March 7th, The Outer Worlds Spacer's Choice Edition, PC, PS5, Xbox Series X. It's also the beginning of Halo Infinite's Season 3. March 8th, we have Cartwrighter Drift as Android, iOS, PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, Oni, Road to the Mightiest Oni, PC, PS4, PS5, Switch. March 9th, Record of Agorist War, Switch, Fatal Frame, Mask of the Lunar Eclipse, PC, PS4, PS5, Switch, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. March 9th is also going to be a Capcom Spotlight event, uh, sort of like a little bit of a direct talking about a few things. Uh, that's taking place 2.30 Pacific time. Then we have March 10th, Before Your Eyes, coming to PSVR 2. Then we have DC's Justice League Cosmic Chaos, PC, PS4, PS5, Switch, Xbox One, and Xbox Series X. Time for us to wrap up the stories we didn't have time to get to. Dead by Daylight is the latest game being adapted by James Wan and Bloomhouse Production. They're well known for producing some of the biggest horror films of the last decade, Get Out, Paranormal Activity, Megan, Split, um, 
this is one of those where it's really it's kind of unfortunate because you know they're, they're basically just buying the name and they're hoping that Dead by Daylight fans will go watch the movie. But that film is probably going to have absolutely nothing to do with the game. Maybe they'll throw a little bit of Easter eggs in it. Just kind of like a cash grab adaptation, in my opinion. According to Deadline, director Jonathan Krizzle, known for Portlandia and Baskets, the negotiations to direct the Detective Pikachu sequel. I'm kind of surprised it's taken so long. The first film did pretty good. It grossed $433.9 million worldwide that's against a 150 million dollar budget so after marketing that's probably 100 million profit that's not too bad surprised it took this long i thought the first one was really good um so yeah hopefully this gets green lit hitman creator iowa interactive announced that they're working on an online fantasy rpg i love when we see a studio that's known for one thing be able to do something fresh and new so best of luck to them we're probably not going to see this for quite some time though um now for those that forgot, a dragon-themed game published by Xbox was previously leaked by Windows Central. There was no indication through their announcement if this was attached to Xbox in any way, so we won't know, I guess. Um, and then just a reminder that their officially licensed James Bond game is expected to be their next release. That's supposed to be dropping 2024-25, probably around there. The International Olympics Committee announced an eSports week taking place in Singapore starting June 22nd. Go visit YouTube. I did a video talking about that. Uh, it's, just, it's just wrong for so many reasons. Go check out that video. And then according to journalist Richard Lewis, Counter-Strike 2 is real with a beta coming soon. Now, Counter-Strike is still Steam's most popular game. Over 1.3 million players play per day some people are saying that this is just going to kind of be an upgrade not really be a separate sequel so i'll have to wait and see personally i hope that they start the beta on they start the beta and announce it or at least announce the beta on april fool's day i think that would be the best thing for them to do i think that would be really funny that's our show before we go shout out to cyberpunk edge runners for taking home anime of the year at the anime awards and a shout out to team ninja woe long fallen dynasty has been their biggest steam launch yet pretty cool to see thank you guys so much for joining me please follow us on twitter and youtube at camp koji for future updates once again i'm joel and i will see you all next week <laughs>